After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. After suffering the loss of their ship, but with no loss of life, Paul, Luke, and their companions spent the winter months on Malta with a bunch of Greeks. And in case you don't know, to a first century Jew, everyone not a Jew was a Greek. They also called them Gentiles. Greeks thought that pretty narrow. (laughs) They thought that anyone who did not speak the Greek language was a barbarian or a Jew. And which was worse? (laughs) Who could say? (laughs) Anyway, as we've made our tour through the early days of the church via Luke's history, we've seen that there are basically three types of people. The Jews who knew the scriptures, the Old Testament, and lived the lifestyle unique to Jews, for the most part. The Greeks, who were either God-fearers, who adhered to the true God through Judaism, or knew next to nothing about the Creator God and couldn't care less about learning more of Him. Last are those who left their old life, either as Jews or Greeks, and embraced the teaching of the apostles concerning Jesus the Christ. The believers. In this last section of Luke's second work, he highlights, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all three groups and summarizes, perhaps we should say generalizes, the behavior of each set of people. For one group, it's the end of the age, the end of a dispensation. For another, it is the beginning of a new age, a new dispensation. For the last, Ah, for the last. It is the beginning of a new life. A new life as part of the family of God. What about us? As 21st century saints, what can we discover in this pericope, this little story within the larger history that summarizes all of the book of Acts? A lot, I think. Starting, actually, with the end of the verse we just read. (laughs) Did you notice that the ship had the twin gods as a figurehead? (laughs) Castor and Pollux were twin sons of Zeus and one of his wives in Greek mythology. Many Greeks believed they cared for those at sea. It was thought that if you saw their constellation, Gemini, Latin for twins, that was a good omen, especially if you were caught in a storm. you got to wonder if Luke laughed when he saw that figurehead. (laughs) Maybe he was still laughing when he wrote this. Paul and all those who were with him in the ship that was destroyed in a storm, but, as Paul clearly pointed out, the true God is the one that saved all of their lives. Now they're going to get into a boat that has the good luck charm of the twins on its bow. Greeks, like most people in the world today, were highly superstitious. They watched horoscopes, used good luck charms, and on and on. Basically hoping to control their fate with some sort of magic. Any good Jew would have laughed at them for this. But were they really any better? Most Jews believed that if you did just as the law said, then you could earn your way to heaven. Well, they would have said to the kingdom of God, But is this really all that much better than the Greeks? (laughs) 
How did they ever imagine they could make themselves good enough for God? Believers have that incredible confidence that comes from knowing we don't have a chance. (laughs) There's absolutely nothing we can do to make God love us. He already does. He already sent His Son to die in our place. There's nothing that we can do to earn our way to heaven, the kingdom of God. It's already done. The Holy Spirit Himself guarantees it for us. Nothing anyone does or says or carries or anything else makes a whit of difference. God has done it all. And that's all that matters. Well, we haven't even got past the first verse. <laughs> we better keep going. Let's join them as they make landfall in Italy. On the second day, we came to Piccioli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. You know, the invitation for we has to include the soldiers who were with Paul. They were guarding him, after all. We've discussed before how the inns of that time were mm, not so sanitized as we might like. They were usually called taverns. Think of it in the worst way. The worst way you can, and you've probably got it. Okay? So for believers to be invited to stay with other Christians makes perfect sense. Can you imagine the thoughts of those soldiers as these goody-two-shoes Christians also hosted them It's something to think about. An even more amazing show of support from other believers was about to take place as they left Cuccioli and marched toward greater metropolitan Rome. And so we came to Rome and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. These These two places were 35 and 45 miles from Rome. A trek the believers made on foot just to greet Paul. You see, three years earlier, Paul had heard about the churches in Rome and had written a letter giving them very detailed instructions in the faith. Copies of that letter had been meticulously kept all this time and are still kept. We call it the Book of Romans. It's a part of the New Testament. It's placed right after this story in your Bibles, but it was written three years earlier. Now, Shortly after Paul sent that letter to them, he went to Jerusalem and a mob of Jews tried to kill him. (laughs) Then he was hauled off to a Roman compound where he was kept for more than two years. For a good part of the last year, they've been trying to get Paul to Rome. The point being that Paul doesn't know what they thought of his letter. He has no idea if they even accepted the teaching, let alone what they think of him or whether they will support him. So these folks hiking out two or even three days to greet Paul because they just couldn't wait till he got to Rome proper meant a lot. And the brothers came to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. You know, folks, let's make the effort to encourage other believers. What am I saying? You guys already do a wonderful job of encouragement. You're here. So now that Paul is well fortified by his brothers in Christ, how will the Greeks, well, Romans in this case, treat him? And when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. 
This is huge. A prisoner that gets to stay in a rented house with just one soldier. Clearly, Julius, the centurion who is tasked with getting Paul to Rome, passed on some very good words concerning Paul. His support of the Gentile community for Paul becomes really important in just a few days. We'll get to it in a second. We often get perturbed nowadays. Well, I do. Because our government seems so antagonistic to our faith, most of us can remember when our government was considered, at least, to be Christian. But Paul lived in an age of idolatry and terrible perversion. And yet God arranged for that godless government to support him. Maybe we shouldn't get so bothered by our government's aberrations. It might do us good to remember that God really is in charge. And what does Paul do with this relative freedom? After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they were gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak to you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. We've looked at Paul's arrest and defense multiple times, so we won't look at that again now. But I'd like you to notice a few things. When Paul talks to them, he uses a number of words and phrases to connect with them. Brothers, our people, the customs of our fathers, my nation, the hope of Israel. But one thing he does is very curious. Remember that he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And yet he says to them that when he should have been set free, the Jews objected. Uh, wait a minute, Paul. You're a Jew. They're Jews. What gives here? Well, the Jewish aristocracy in Rome saw itself as better than anyone else, Jew or Greek. The high priest and company were the Ivy League grads of their day, the intelligentsia. They were stuck up. Okay. <laughs> they were also politicians more than anything. They didn't believe thing when it came to scripture or God. That sort of thing was for the common folk. You know. So as you can imagine, the common folk, especially those far from Jerusalem, wanted to be aligned with them about as much as they wanted to be aligned with the average Jew. <laughs> so for Paul to differentiate himself and them from the ruling Jewish authorities in the homeland was not such a long stretch. And it has a bearing on their curious reaction to Paul's statement. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Whoa! We can see them not getting letters from the Jerusalem crowd. Okay, that's... But nobody has spoken of Paul? The church in Rome was so active in their excitement of seeing Paul that some of them rushed out just so they could see him a few days sooner. How could it be that no Jews outside the church knew anything? Were these guys being, shall we say, diplomatic? <laughs> Remember, a soldier with some clout, this, this was very easy duty, was sitting right there. Paul is a Roman citizen, 
and obviously a favored one. Maybe they figured if our leaders in Jerusalem can't win there, what chance do we have a thousand miles away where Paul is clearly held in high esteem? Whether they were lying or not, <clears throat> they do agree to debate, to a debate, to consider Paul's argument. And did you sense a curiosity in their statement? How is it that this sect is growing so tremendously when all our relatives keep railing about its evils? And they must have been astonished at Paul's obvious education and intellect. Have you noticed ever how surprised people are when they find out you're believers? Wait a minute. You're an intelligent human being and you believe that stuff? <laughs> it is funny that that feeling that intelligence will always result in people holding the same beliefs that we do. <laughs> it's not true and it's not relevant as Paul will soon make clear. Whatever the case, word gets out all around town and tickets for the rumble in Rome are a hot item. Okay, fine. It wasn't like that really at all. But it was still a big deal. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets all day long. We know Paul knew his stuff, but these people did too. It's no small task to carry on a debate for an entire day. To answer people like this, Paul needed to be studied up. He took part in the original Special Forces training class, in case you wanted to know. So that's a class I offer here. Never mind. Uh, anyway, he used all the scripture that was available to him. The result... <sighs> alas, about what it always was with the Jews. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Not everyone that we speak to will believe. It isn't about truth. It isn't facts. It isn't intelligence. Listen. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn. And I would heal them. Hear, see, understand. Their ears barely hear. They've closed their eyes, their minds, their hearts. It's the same word don't want to understand. They don't want to turn from their wicked ways. Paul quoted from Isaiah, a century after Isaiah, another very Paul-like person was a prophet to the Jews. Listen to the words of God that Ezekiel recorded. As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses. And they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, please, Come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. 
So the fate of, it appears, most of the Jews who could not leave the old dispensation and move into the new. So the fate of many who love the song of Christianity, all the good things, but they will not do the words of Scripture. They want the good, but they don't want to pay the price to achieve it. Because in reality, they want it for themselves. (laughs) Their hearts pursue their own gain. It's not the gain of God or of others that they seek. And so they cannot hear. They will not see. They will not understand. But some did believe. Some do now. And how did Paul introduce the words of Isaiah? The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah. The Holy Spirit? How would they know anything about the Holy Spirit? Do you remember years before this when Paul was traveling and he encountered those believers who knew only the teaching of John the Baptist, the twelve hermits? Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. With John's disciples, Paul taught them all about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But here, when Paul mentioned the Holy Spirit, he was talking to the Jews, but saying it for those who believed. The Jews who would not believe wouldn't even admit there was such a person as a Holy Spirit. But those who believed already had him in their hearts they would instantly have recognized this when Paul mentioned the Spirit's work. See, that's the great difference between the old dispensation and the new. Because of the work of Christ, we can now have the Holy Spirit himself resident in us, constantly urging us on to perfection, ever picking us up after we fall, (laughs) always assuring us that we belong to the Father. Anyone who believes, Jew or Greek, can become a believer. But mostly, mostly this is the age of the Gentiles. So Paul tells them, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. The salvation of God, the hope of Israel given to the Gentiles. Many Jews believe, even today, One day, Jews in mass will recognize Jesus as their Messiah. But not yet. And not then. And Paul, well, how did it go for him? He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. In the very heart of the Roman Empire... Christ is proclaimed by the apostle to the Gentiles for two full years, protected by a government antithetical to the faith. He spoke to Jews, to Greeks, to believers. He wrote some letters as well. We call them the prison epistles, although Paul was really not in prison but under house arrest. One of those letters was to the church in Philippi, a church that continuously sent money so that Paul could live in a house at his own expense. In this letter, there's a section where he describes what is happening to the Greeks, with the Greeks, the Jews, and the believers. It's actually mixed all together, but I've I've separated it out for you. Concerning the Greeks, he said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So 
But it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Some of the very soldiers that guarded Caesar learned that. That what they thought was a punishment of Paul by the empire was actually designed by God to tell the world about Jesus. It wasn't them at all. Those unbelieving Jews, they complained about Jesus so much that everybody started to ask questions. Some indeed preached Christ from envy and rivalry. They proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my punishment, in my imprisonment. Paul is not saying that they intended to preach in a good sense. He's saying that they talk about Jesus all the time, not to promote his name, but rather to cause trouble for Paul. <laughs> we'll get back to the result in a moment. But what did Paul's imprisonment do for the believers? And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Remember the wannabe troublemakers who preached Christ out of envy for Paul's success? Well, there were also some who were genuinely trying to tell others about the good news, the gospel. Some preach Christ from goodwill, out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And the result of the good and the bad? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. That is what Paul was doing in Rome for two full years. Okay, and many years before that, and some after that too. Well, what about us? If we are arrested, will we rejoice and proclaim Christ in truth? We will, if we are believers. Even if we are not, though we must and we will proclaim Christ, in, by the way. Do you know anyone who meticulously lives their religion but has no faith? Proclaim to them Jesus Christ, risen from the grave. How about someone who doesn't think there is any possibility of a creator God? Well, proclaim to them Jesus Christ, risen from the grave. <laughs> Ooh, our message does not need to vary. Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a perfect, sinless life, was falsely accused, tried, murdered on a cross, and buried in a tomb. But who he was made it impossible to stay dead. He came back to life. Then he ascended to heaven. Not exactly sure how that works, or even really what it means when you get right down to it. But I do know that he will one day return. He will return and take his church with him. And all of this that we've been talking about is what we proclaim when we take communion together. Don't know if you knew that. I'm going to read from another letter of Paul that he wrote when he was a, before he was a prisoner. I'm sorry, before he even wrote the letter to the Romans, he wrote this. He's instructing them in, on how to best remember Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for us in a ceremony. So he says, "For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you." that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me 
In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. They had quite a problem going on. They had full meals. They had actual full meals to re-celebrate that uh, Christ. And the problem is, as Paul said, they got a group of people who just kind of came there for the food and just gorged themselves and they didn't wait for other people and they just regret. And it was a disaster. It wasn't working well. Paul says, okay, let's, let's get down to the basics. The basics are this. The basic is this unleavened bread and this unleavened wine. That's it. That's all we need to deal with. Let's not try to do a whole big meal. That doesn't mean you can't. It just means that in this celebration, this is all we use. We use two symbols that Jesus used at the Last Supper with the disciples. And they have two purposes. The first one is to remember his body that is broken for us. We remember that Jesus died on the cross. Let's do that together. Thank you, Father. That you sent your son and he agreed to come and die for us. So hard for us to understand how God can add a human nature to his person and actually truly experience death and death on a cross. It's just hard for us to grasp all of that. But you've given us this ability to remember him and these symbols that help us and that Christians have been doing since that time for nearly 2,000 years. People have been celebrating the death of Christ with this unleavened bread. Help us to remember what he did for us. And then he said, this wine is the new covenant in my blood. This is what makes us new. This is what gives us eternal life. Jesus dying for us. Not the physical blood, but the picture of what the blood did, the fact that he died not just physically. Spiritually, he suffered through death and came back alive spiritually. He went through the whole thing for us so that we don't have to. So remember that as we take this together. Once again, Father, thank you. The amazement of Jesus Christ dying, raising again, and promising, I'll come back. I will come back. And do this until I come back to remember me. Thank you, Lord, for these symbols of your great love for us. Help us, as Paul did and Peter did throughout the book of Acts. We read how they brought the story of your son to people all throughout the world. It started in Jerusalem. They worked out to Samaria. Then they went out and out. And finally, Paul 
if the history serves us right, the Bible doesn't tell us, but he went clear to the edge of Europe where the last known peoples were. Everywhere he could go to tell people about you and indeed there isn't any place on this planet where people cannot hear about your son. We praise you for that and thank you that we can be a part of it. Especially here. We've got people in this town. We've got people that we're going to see today who do not know you. They don't know your son. They don't understand what it means that he rose from the dead. Help us, Lord, somehow to express the glory and the wonder and the amazement of that truth to them. That they can understand that there's more than this life. There's more than this universe. There is an entire another dimension. It's a spiritual dimension. And then one day, this whole universe is going to be completely burned up and replaced with a brand new one that you're going to make. And that's where we can live forever in a perfect universe with no sin, zero, absolutely no death, no tears, no crying, no pain anymore. That's the promise of Jesus risen from the dead. Help us to express that in some way to people. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message first heard at Living Hope Church of Westport. Please feel free to worship with us, maybe this next Sunday. You can also join us online at southbeachhope.org. We'd appreciate your financial support if that is possible. We are a tiny church in a small town, but at least with the help of Sermon.net, we can share the good news with you and everyone around the world. Hopefully we'll someday be able to worship God together in person, if not in Westport, at least in the rapture. <laughs>